So as we transition to our study, I wanted to ask this question. Have you ever gone to a website to gain access into an account and been locked out? Has that ever happened to you? I don't know what it is with me. It seems like it's quite frequent. I go back a few years ago, I had registered with the DMV online and it was time for me to renew a license. And I went to the website and I typed in my information and it told me I had the wrong password. So I went back and I double checked and it seemed I had the right one. I tried again. At that point, they gave me different options. They said, you can change your password or open a new account. And I thought that would be the easiest thing. And so I went through the instructions to change my password. And when I went back in and typed that in, it informed me that I already had an account and I had the wrong password. I needed the original. And I just gave up. It was just so frustrating. I share that story because it's my perception that some Christians approach God in the same way. It's like going to a website and there has to be a specific password to get access into heaven. And they pray and it feels like their prayers are hitting a firewall in heaven. They're not being heard. They're not being received. And God feels a million miles away. Maybe you feel that today. Maybe you feel like God is not interested, that he's distant. He's not mindful of your needs and your circumstances. Your prayers are not being heard. It has been my prayer this week that when we look at this passage, you would correct your theology and realize that that is not the case that your God is available 24-7. He longs to receive your request. He wants to affirm his activity, his work, and his presence. And my longing is that as we grow in the conviction of that truth, that we grow in a sensitivity of its reality. I want to give us a brief review. I want to take you back to where we left off last week so that we have a context with your Bibles open. Please then look at verses 4, 5, and 6 in chapter 3. Paul earlier wrote in verse 4, in reading this, speaking about this epistle, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. We talked about last week how this theme mystery is near and dear to his heart. Continue reading with me that you will have insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not been made known to people in other generations. It has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery, verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and third, shares together in the promises in Christ Jesus. If you're just joining us today, the mystery that Paul was referring to is twofold. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. And we understood that when God created the heavens and the earth, when he created mankind, in his omniscience, he already knew that mankind was going to sin against him. So the plan had always been to send a redeemer, a savior. And we talked about that even in Genesis, how God had already declared that his one and only son would come to this earth, live a sinless life, that he would then die on the cross, be buried, on the third day come back to life, and in doing so, conquer sin and death. And as he talked about this mystery that angels, as we're going to see today, didn't understand that this was God's plan. Generations didn't comprehend it. But he says, now, here in the first century, the fullness of time, as Christ has come to this earth, and he's been raised back and ascended now into heaven, we get it. Jesus explained it to us. But the second part of that mystery, 
that many in the first century were not grasping is that that message was not just to the Jews. It was for everybody. There was Jews and Gentiles. God cares about every single person. I come back to restate that in your specific context. No matter what your circumstance, your situation may be, God has sent his one and only son as evidence that he has interest, concern, and care about your life and your journey. And he wants to reveal more about what he wants to accomplish. There is a purpose for your existence. And I want to emphasize that. I hear a lot of rhetoric these days from individuals who are regretting living in this time. Yes, let's long for Christ's return. But I've heard some that are older that's like, things aren't the way they used to be. I long for the way it used to be. They don't want to be in this time, this season. And I assert to you that if God is sovereign and he is in control, he has put you for such a time as this. You are here by design and purpose, and you have a reason, and you have a plan that God wants you to fulfill. And Paul knows this message. It's near and dear to his heart. It's part of his longing, this redemptive plan, and an access to our purpose, which is the first thing we're going to learn. This theme of grace is one of his favorite themes, and we're going to learn today what does grace do for us. First and foremost, God has granted us a purpose. Would you write that down? That you are here with a meaning, with a responsibility, with God's anointing, with his direction in your life. Let me take you now to verse seven that Titus began with. Notice what Paul begins with. And I wanna emphasize that this is a parenthetical thought. He's been building this huge theology and he stops to insert his personal testimony, a relational flair, if you will, on how he experiences and sees this idea of God's mercy and grace. And he says then in verse seven, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. I became a servant of this gospel. Servant's kind of a foreign word to us. It's difficult for us to understand and imagine. But, but think about a different time. Think about when there were servants who valued and appreciated their master. They wanted to please him, to be able to help him or her. When the master came in, they were excited. There was an anticipation. They had prepared everything. Paul was indebted to the gospel the gospel had changed his life. He hated Christians and he hated Christ and he was on a mission to murder and to kill them. And God got a hold of his life and it was changed for all eternity. And as a result of this, he became a servant indebted to the message of grace to share it with others so that others could know the hope and the blessing that comes from following Christ. Pick up in verse eight. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me, and he's gonna give us specifically what that is, his job description, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Stop right there. Essentially what Paul is saying is that I am overwhelmed at the privilege to be employed by God. I am an employer of the kingdom. For just a moment, think back. 
I look at the, the congregation here, the demographics, I see that some of you have moved to retirement. It's a long time since you interviewed for a job. Some of you are looking for work and you're hoping to get interviews. The whole gamut is here today. But think about that occasion. You're competing with other individuals. You need that job. You've prepared your resume. You've been invited to come and interview. And you're hoping and you're longing they're going to see something in you that helps them to make a choice and put you in to be a part of their company. And when the offer comes, there's this excitement, this enthusiasm. You were chosen. You were honored. You now have a job. You have employment. There's a paycheck coming and hopefully some health insurance. And you feel honored in that moment. The Apostle Paul felt that every single day, and you and I should as well. If you're here today and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been employed by God and you have a job description. The Apostle Paul's job description was that he was to preach the good news to the Gentiles, and he never got tired of it. As we look at our own lives, we have been employed by God to carry out an assignment. There is a job description that has been provided for us. And as we consider what is God wanting to do, we're encouraged and reminded. Look at verse 9. It's a restatement of what he's been saying. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. There's that term again. This mystery that God so loved the world, which for ages was kept hidden in God who created all things. We won't take time to revisit that idea, but he keeps coming back to this awareness that so many before didn't understand that. He's wanting his readers and for us to recognize how privileged we are that we have been given insight into the supernatural, into the spiritual realm. Let me give an illustration that will drive this point home. So on my car, there is a monitor that informs me of what the tire pressure is on my car. And if the tire pressure drops too low, it gives a warning light. So last week, it came on the screen, and it gave me the different pressures of each tire. Three of them were at 28, and one was down to 25. Now, if you don't know anything about tire and tire pressure, they're supposed to be at 32. Well, no problem, because I have this handy-dandy pump. And this pump then actually plugs into the lighter on my car. This pump has tremendous power, even though it's small. It can actually pump up a flat tire to 32 pounds in four minutes. So the pressure in my tires was no big deal. I started with the one that was the lowest, and I filled it up to 32, and then I began to work my way around the car. When I made it to the fourth tire, all of a sudden it stopped working. I thought, that's kind of odd. I made sure that the button was on, and it was, and so then I felt it, concerned that maybe it had gotten hot. It was not. I looked through the window, and I saw that it was still in the lighter, and so I went back and double-checked and hit the button again, and nothing. At that point, I realized that somehow it was lacking power. So I crawled back into the car, and I moved this slightly, and it reconnected to the power source, and the pump came on. The point of the illustration is that I look at believers who have understood that they can do nothing apart from Christ. John chapter 15, you have to be plugged into the power source. 
And many of you have really adopted that idea. You're spending time in God's word. You're seeing that Christ Jesus is your source for strength and for power. And as a result, you're seeing God do amazing things. But all of a sudden, you hit this flat spot. It's as if God is not working. You become distant. Maybe there's some doubts or the discouragement, and you feel set aside. I want to encourage you to go back and double check. Make sure, because in the Apostle Paul's life, the power of God was everything. Go back to verse 7. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I became a servant of this gospel, next by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. The power of God meant everything to Paul. When you talk about how he had been saved by grace, and I've already referenced how he hated Christians, was heading to Damascus to throw them in jail and ultimately have them persecuted, God had to stop him with his power. He literally stopped him on the road, blinded him by the light, and Jesus spoke into his life and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul was saved to become Paul through the power of God. And he's recognized and realized that God's power is necessary every single day. When he writes to Timothy, he alerts him as a young pastor, and he says, many in your church have a form of religion. They come faithfully to the 9.30 service. They even bring their Bibles. On occasion, they take notes, but their lives lack supernatural power. They don't resist temptation. They don't sense God's presence. They don't hear his voice. They don't feel his guidance. And he says, emphasize to them, Timothy, they have the power of Christ Jesus in their life, the same power that raised him back from the dead. And so Paul is revisiting this idea to the Ephesians. Now, this is, this is not a unique theme. You look at every one of his epistles, and he's talking about the power of the gospel. Let me show you one of the most famous examples. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I want you to read it out loud, and let's say it together. Are you ready? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. I was watching a sermon last week, my brother's church up north. The pastor was telling a story that took place in their church in the middle of last fall. There's a family that attended that had been praying for their mother. Elderly mother was Hindu, a practicing Hindu. And suddenly she slipped into a coma. And they began to think that God had not heard their prayers, that her heart was too hardened. She was too distant from God. Three days later, she sat up in bed, completely conscious. She looked at her son and she said, I had a vision of Jesus Christ. He came to me and he explained who he was and declared that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and there was no way to God the Father apart from him, and I have put my faith in Christ Jesus, and I have trusted him for my salvation, and the next day she died and went to heaven. I want to say to you, I am not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. I declare to you that nobody could lead a person in coma to Christ Jesus. 
You and I do not have that kind of power. In fact, we don't even have the power to save anyone. But I bring you back to the people that you're praying for, the ones that you feel like are too far gone, the ones that are lost and their hearts are hardened. Nobody is too far from the power of the gospel. You and I need to have that kind of faith that Paul had to believe that God still moves mountains. So here's your assignment. I'm going to give you two assignments this week. The first one, as it comes on the screen, is I want you to write a life purpose statement. Write a life purpose statement. I wish I had time to go through every single demographic represented, but I'm going to hit a couple of them. I'm going to start with my esteemed peers over 60. (laughs) Some of you are at this place in your life, and then I want to hit these specific aspects, I want you to write in that purpose transcends your roles. You assume that your purpose was your role. And I want to commend you because you've carried those roles out well. You've been great parents, good spouses. You're now good grandparents, many of you. You've been good employees or employers. But now you're coming to the end of those roles and you're beginning to think that you don't have purpose. Purpose transcends roles. Cornerstone's purpose is to love God and others well. Vision will change. Strategies change. Purpose remains the same. It's transcendent. It's not too late to write a life's purpose. If you're still here and you still have a pulse, God has a purpose for your life. Second thing, purpose reflects your passion. Now, most of you know Ben Cook, who's our middle school pastor. If you don't know, Ben is from Kansas City, and he loves the Kansas City Chiefs. Last night, at 10 below zero, the Chiefs beat the Dolphins. Ben is very passionate about the Chiefs. So I just want to warn you, stay away from him today. (laughs) But I want to emphasize to you that that's not the kind of passion that I'm talking about. Because the Chiefs are going to get knocked out and Ben's passion will go away. (laughs) The kind of passion that I'm talking about is a passion that transcends circumstances. Let's think about Sarah Sattler. Sarah Sattler has been given a passion for worshiping God. It goes beyond her role. It's not just because she has a title of worship leader. It goes beyond that because God has given her a purpose and a passion And I proclaim to you that when you and I are in heaven and worship is continuing, she will be a person who's continuing to lead us in worshiping at the throne of God. Passion is reflected in your purpose. And the last thing I want you to write down is purpose results in action. So I've given you this passage from the Apostle Paul in Philippians. It's one of many. In fact, as we're looking at this passage, it reflects his purpose. The one in Philippians does as well that he knows that he's here for a reason. My life purpose statement is simply this. I want to live in a manner each day that I inspire others to know and want to draw close to Christ Jesus. I want to live every single day in a manner and a way that inspires others to want to know and draw close to Jesus. So I want you to think about this week. What is your purpose? Now, 
I could spend a long time talking about the consequences if you don't do this. And I'll go back to my young friends. If you're in your early 20s or your teenagers or you're in your late 20s, this is critical because your purpose will help then to define your values, who you're going to marry, who you're going to spend your life with, where you go to school, all those different things. But if you're here today and you have not drilled down on why God has created you and what is your purpose, what will happen is you will lack meaning. You will lack clarity. You will lack focus. You will lack accomplishment. I propose to you that some of you are frustrated at this point in your life and you're pointing to your spouse. You're pointing to your work. You're pointing to the end of a role that was important to you as a parent or whatever it might be. And you, you're just bored. You don't have vision. You don't have direction. And I come back to the fact that if you allow the spirit to speak into your heart and you know your purpose and why you exist, the exact opposite is true. All of a sudden, every single day, you start living in a way that you know that every day matters. Every day. You quit living for the weekend. You start living for the moment. And you realize that God has created you for that very moment. That there's something he's going to do. Something amazing that he can accomplish. And when that begins to happen, you start living with anticipation. There's an excitement for what might be next. And with that comes clarity. You actually begin to realize what I've been saying to you every single week. You have value in Christ Jesus. When I assert to you, you have identity in Christ Jesus. The reality is that identity is that he created you. He is your creator. And he knows why he created you. And when you go beyond that, you start thinking about, we're going to see this in the next point, is that the Apostle Paul, I remind you, is writing from jail which means that even undesirable circumstances in the hand of God has a purpose, which means there's something that's measurable. And when you start having these qualities and characteristics, you start having momentum. You start having momentum in your life. You start moving forward, and there's energy and joy that accompanies it. And it always comes back to the fact that you were created for a purpose, which brings us to the second thing of what Paul is telling us. By God's grace, we've been given a message. You and I have something to share that's embedded in whatever our unique purpose might be. Pick up with me now in verses 10 and 11. Watch how he, as he goes on to explain the larger context of this. Verse 10, he said, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal, there it is, his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he comes back to talking about God's larger plan for his people. There's a lot to be said about this, but I want to narrow it down to two specific things, and I've got two passages for you to write down. Please write down the first one is Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 12 verse 3. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, it is God inviting Abraham into his company, into his plan. And in that chapter, he says to Abraham, if you will follow me and trust me, put your faith in me, I will make you a father of a great nation. And many of you that are churchgoers, you're familiar with that. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. But oftentimes what's missed is at the tail end of verse three is he goes on to say, and from your seed, all nations will be blessed. 
That is a prophecy of Christ Jesus. Jesus was the descendant of Abraham. All nations would be blessed. They would have an opportunity of salvation. They would have access to God through Christ. But there was an immediate intent behind that. And if you read through the Old Testament, what you discover is that God's plan was to impart to his people, Israel, the children of Israel, his law and his words. And as they carried that law out, and also what came with that, the sacrificial system, so that their sins would be covered as they wait for the Messiah, that as they carried that out and they followed and obeyed God's word, they would be blessed and other nations would see it and they would long to know Yahweh. Now you're looking at that and you're thinking about all the commandments and saying, well, of course they didn't carry that out. That's impossible. But if you go to Deuteronomy, he narrowed it down and Jesus restates this in the New Testament. If you want to obey the law, you only have to remember two of the laws. Do you know what they are? Here's the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love others, number two, as yourself. If you do those two things, Jesus says, you will fulfill all of the law. That's essentially what was said to them in Deuteronomy. You don't have to memorize all of them. Just focus on these two. And when that happens, I will bless you. And the other nations will say, your God is the real God. But they didn't do that. They failed. What's important for you to know is that the next part of it that Paul's talking about was not plan B. It's always been a part of plan A. And that is called the age of the church. That's the time in which we live. That's what he's talking about. And Jesus Christ was the one that initiated that. Here's the second passage right down. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus has already come back to life. He's resurrected. He's about ready to ascend back into heaven. And he tells his disciples, his followers, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I have come back to life. I've demonstrated that I am the son of God. I call the shots. Here's the shots that I'm calling. Go and make disciples of all nations. It goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. It's the same thing. It's still the same plan. But he's saying now we're going to do that through the church. And as he begins to go on, he says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Shameless plug, I go back to, if you've not been baptized, sign up today. Obey that primary command and get baptized next week. Let's celebrate and party together. Being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to do everything that I have told you to do. And I am with you to the very end of the age. Think about what Christ Jesus is saying to us. You and I, as a part of our purpose, has been given this message to deliver this message. Right before Christmas, I pulled my Chevy into the gas station, Vaughn's in Laverne. If you've ever been to the station that Vaughn's has on the island, there's two pumps on each side. As I pulled into the back slot where that pump was, there was an elderly lady that was about 15 feet away from the tank, and she was trying to back up to that pump. And she kept trying and trying, and I'm thinking, wow, she's really struggling. Finally, she got out of the car, and she went over, and she pulled the nozzle out of the saddle, and she tried to stretch it, and it was still too far away. When she went back and put it back into the, into the tank and the saddle, she looked over at me, and I rolled my window down, and I said, do you need some help? And she said, oh, yes, please. 
So I got out of my car and she said, will you back my car in? I'm like, okay. So I crawl in and there's her elderly husband sitting in the passenger seat. I'm like, oh, hello. And, and he doesn't look at me. He keeps looking straight forward. He mumbles something under his breath. And I'm not sure what he said, but it's something like, I can't believe she can't get the car backed up next to the gas pump. So embarrassing. So I pulled it over and she was so appreciative and so gracious. And I got out and I went back to my car and I was getting ready to pump. And I could see that she couldn't figure out how to get her card into the PayPal to pay for her gas. Again, she looked at me and I said, do you want me to help you? She goes, yeah, I, I don't know how this works. And so I went over and she got it paid and started pumping gas. And ultimately she filled her tank and her and her husband were on to their destination. The apostle Paul looked and everywhere he looked, he saw people who were on empty. Their tanks were empty, running on fumes. And he saw that they were too distant from the one that could fill their tanks. They're too far away. And he realized that the church, you and I, had this privilege to come alongside these individuals and help guide them close to the one that can fill their tank, fill their souls, change their desperation to hope. He says that's the message that we get to share, that we get to participate in. I would say to you that God has different means for the same message. Can I repeat that? God has different means for the same message. Heard recently about a large church in Northern California, one of their paid staff, one of the maintenance workers, all of a sudden felt like he was having a heart attack, grabbed his chest, dropped to his knees. His coworker was there, so I'm turned pale white, began to realize, oh my goodness, he's gonna have a heart attack right here. Quickly called 911, the paramedics came, got him stabilized in the ambulance and rushed him off to the ER. Feeling a little bit better, but still having severe pains, he sat down in a chair next to a woman. Pretty soon they introduced themselves, exchanged names, and she transparently said to him, I've been sitting here praying that someone would come and tell me how to be saved. And so he shared his testimony, and then he led her to Christ and introduced to the Lord. And as soon as he did, all of the pain went away. Some are thinking, that is an amazing coincidence. Is it? I say again that God uses different means for the same message. The message is that every single one of us come to faith and salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Would God actually use a place where you potentially are having a heart attack to save another person? Absolutely. Would God use your difficult circumstances, moms, with those toddlers that are not sleeping through the night and you're absolutely exhausted to put you next to another mom who's like, I don't know how you do it. Or individuals at work that are in the difficult place of working for an employee that's unreasonable and everybody else comes to you because they trust you and they will lament and complain and gripe. And they say, why don't you do that? Would God use your undesirable circumstances to introduce someone else to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? Yes, every day, all the time, all the time. So I want you this week to write your personal testimony, not just your life's purpose statement, but your personal testimony. And I want you to consider these things. A testimony reveals transformation. Go to that passage in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's testimony. 
it's one sentence. I was the worst of sinners. I was a blasphemer, a violent man. He doesn't highlight, he doesn't spend a lot of time on it. He quickly moves to the next thing about God's goodness. But because of my ignorance, I was shown grace and mercy, and I've been given this message to help others to know that they can know the God of the universe. And he goes on to say, a testimony offers hope. It helps them to know that no matter what their circumstance, no matter what they've done, how bad a sinner they've been, there is hope in Christ Jesus. Now, I know some of you, and you were raised in the church. And on occasion, I have some friends that say, well, I don't have that kind of testimony. You know, I've never been in jail, or I haven't been on drugs, and I haven't been a criminal stealing things. But I say to you that every single one of us, if you put your faith in Christ, there's been a transformation. I was that guy. Raised in church, dad a pastor, never been drunk, didn't take drugs. But my heart was black and dark, full of hatred, prejudice, judgment, anger. And Christ Jesus began to show me that from the heart the mouth speaks. That it was like the Pharisees, whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones. And all of a sudden, the power of Christ, which I am not ashamed of, the gospel that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, was relevant to me, the pastor's kid, raised in the church whose heart was hardened to the gospel of Christ Jesus. You have a story to tell, which brings us to the big idea as God's grace has provided access So I want to read verses 12 and 13. I want to restate Cornerstone's vision, and then I want to take you to the closing. Notice what Paul goes on to say, in him and through faith in him. Look at this. We may approach God with freedom and confidence. In Christ Jesus, you and I can approach God's throne of grace with freedom. We're not being in bondage because of our sin or our past or our parents or whatever it might be, with freedom and with confidence. He goes on in verse 13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. I'm gonna come back and unpack that, but I wanna come back to then talking about the vision of Cornerstone. Our vision at Cornerstone is that we would make meaningful connections to our neighbors so that we might share the gospel. Meaningful connections. We talked about a number of things that we can do. If you haven't done this in a while, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call you out on this again. I'm gonna ask you, to start meeting your neighbors, learn their names, then start a prayer list, start praying for your neighbors, that their hearts would be open, it would be softened. Third thing is provide acts of kindness. Bring their trash can in on the next day after they've been picked up. Take them a plate of cookies and then invite a point of connection. If they like sports and you like sports, have them over to watch the game. If you don't, take them out for coffee or invite them over just to spend some time together. Get to know them, and then ultimately look for a chance to invite them to something at Cornerstone. There are two events coming up designed exactly for this. Pastor Mike Churchill, beginning of next month, is going to have yet another men's breakfast. If you've been to a men's breakfast, guys, you know that he creates it in such a way that it's not heavy on preaching. There's a short devotional, and there's a chance for a relational connection. You can bring your neighbors, 
Have them meet your friends and begin to dialogue and talk about what life is about. And ladies, the same thing. Pam Salcedo, our women's director, in February is going to have a ladies' brunch. It's designed in the same way. It goes back to our vision and how we carry that out. It's because we want them to know that through Christ Jesus, they can have access with freedom and confidence. Freedom and confidence. And the last thing goes back to verse 13, where he inserts his last thought, don't be discouraged by my circumstances. What does he mean by that? And how does it fit you? It goes back to something earlier that I said, is that he's writing from prison and they're discouraged and sad about their dear friend's predicament. But there's also some fear in their heart that if we keep sharing the good news, as he's telling us, the same thing is gonna happen to us. And I go back to the stories that I've been sharing with you is that God works through all things for your good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Here's the massive contrast between us and the world. We're gonna have the same type of problems. The difference is that God is gonna use our problems for a purpose and it has meaning and it has value. So I had to renew my license again this last summer. And I asked myself, do I want to go back to that DMV website? And I said, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to actually go right to the DMV without an appointment and see what happens. <laughs> and so I got to the front door, and I totally expected someone to say, oh, no, you can't come in. You don't have an appointment. You don't have a password. You're kicked out. But the doors were wide open. I walked right up to the front, and I said, hey, my name is Bruce French. You sent me this paperwork. Evidently, I'm so old, I have to get my license renewed. And they said, great, just go right over to that counter, fill out the information on the computer they have about your life, your address, so on and so forth. They're going to give you a number. Then you're going to go over to that, and you're going to do an eye test. And after you do that, they're going to take your picture, and your license will be mailed to you. I am legal once again. <laughs> That's the message of this passage. As Jesus says, you may have felt locked out of heaven, but through me, you have access right to the very front, right through the door. So the final thing I want you to do this week is I want you to go to this passage in Hebrews chapter four. I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews said the exact same thing that Paul was saying, is that you have a high priest that is able to relate and understand to all that you've been through, and you can go into the throne room of grace with confidence in your time of need for mercy and for grace. So I want you to ask yourself, where do you need mercy today? Have you reached the point where you believe that God is good all the time and he's going to grant you mercy? And where do you need grace? Of what, what of your circumstances and situations do you need grace today? Would you please bow with me? Father, it's humbling to think that no matter what our past happens to be, no matter how young or old we may be, that you have invited to be a part of what you're doing. And the first step of that is by putting our faith in you, Lord Jesus, and asking you to forgive us of our sins. So it is my prayer, my initial prayer, that if there's anyone here today in person or online that has not done that, that they would humble themselves enough to recognize they can't buy their way into heaven, they can't do enough good things. And I pray that they would ask you for forgiveness of their sins and believe that, Jesus, you hung on the cross long enough to pay for their sins and that your resurrection was evidence that you've conquered sin and death. And I pray that they would share that with someone, whether someone on the prayer team or one of the staff 
or someone they're sitting next to you so we can celebrate together that someone has moved from death to life, eternal life. But I pray for all the rest of my brothers and sisters who have that assurance and confidence of salvation that you would help them to drill down on why they're here and what their purpose is. That they would not spend another day wandering in perplexity with uncertainty, but they would see that you have a reason for all that they're going through. Help them to press into you and sense your guidance, your affirmation, your love, and your care. Lord Jesus, it's in your name that I pray, amen.